Hi, welcome to the show. You know what I hate? I hate Facebook posts that tell me how to become super rich. I hate commercials that tell me the easy steps to become a millionaire. So let's get this straight. It's not easy. It takes a lot of things, not the least of which is focus, commitment, and a host of other intangibles that are required. Now, Grant Cardone is not a household name, but he is a self-made American entrepreneur who went from broke to earning millions. He owns and operates four companies that do nearly $100 million in annual sales and says he did it by following six steps. Now, he says those steps are simple, but I'll leave that up to you to decide. In his book, The Millionaire Booklet, How to Get Super Rich, Cardone says anyone can get rich regardless of their current economic condition, where they live, or what they do. And as I said, I know it's not that simple and there are no guarantees you'll start earning as much as Cardone, but nonetheless, here are the steps he says worked for him, and I'm going to paraphrase a lot of what he says in the book. Number one, he says mentally commit. He says getting rich starts with your mindset, with the belief that you can really accumulate wealth. The biggest mistake is to think becoming a millionaire is impossible. The first thing you have to do is to decide to become a millionaire, decide to become a multimillionaire or even a billionaire if you want. Then you must reinforce that decision over and over. My take on deciding to do this is that it is another way of saying you have to develop a focus that is laser sharp and relentless. It's a life decision that doesn't change from day to day. Step two, do the math. Next, crunch the numbers, he says, to see what it actually takes to reach seven figures or whatever your personal goal is. Cardone calls this million-dollar math, where you figure out the different possible paths that can get you to collect a million dollars. For example, if you can figure out a way to get 5,000 people to buy a $200 product, there's your million. Or if 5,000 people paid you $17 a month for 12 months, that would also get you a million bucks. And while these examples are highly simplified, his point is, do the math to create possibility, then create the strategy to make it happen. Now, most don't do the math, so they don't have a roadmap to get them started. And if you don't know where you're going, you're probably going to end up nowhere. Number three, increase your income. Once you've done the math and realize how real it is to get super rich, you need to focus on increasing your income streams. And he notes, self-made millionaires rarely depend on a sure thing, so most of them tend to have at least three sources of income. Some of the ways of increasing your income, through internet sales or becoming a paid blogger for something you're passionate about, editing for authors, releasing a podcast, real estate rentals, stock market investments, side businesses, or even part-time jobs such as teaching language or driving for Lyft. Seek out multiple ways of increasing or supplementing your income streams. Also, you know, this is called the gig economy. That's where you are pulling together multiple ways of earning an income. It's harder to be a member of the gig economy. But it's also safer because if one income source goes away like you get fired, you have others to replace it. Okay, step number four, find out who has money and spend time with them. Then make a list of people who can pay you for what you're good at and get in touch with them. In other words, connect with people who have money and exchange what you have, your skills and your knowledge for what they have, the money. Cardone believes there's no shortage of money. And by the way, I agree with that. The key is to get in front of those who have it, investors or potential buyers, and provide them with value. And number five, stay broke. No matter how much you increase your income, he says stay broke. Cardone says he has a policy to never, ever have money sitting around. Once he starts increasing his income, he immediately moves the surplus to sacred accounts that are out of his reach and marked for future investments. 
this is the way of paying yourself first, investing your money before paying anyone else. And this way, he's never ever tempted to spend or waste money that's just sitting around. So this is similar to thinking about funding your 401k, which comes out of your paycheck before you see the money. You'll spend what's left. You'll get used to living on what's left. And the savings and investments that you put aside will snowball over time. Plus, he says, when you're broke, you're motivated. This state of staying broke forces you to continue producing revenue and to keep reinforcing the actions that had already proven successful. And finally, step number six, save to invest, don't save to save. Investing money is how you get super rich. So Cardone believes the only reason to save money is to one day invest it. This was the topic of one of my recent commentaries titled To Have and Have Not. It takes saving and investing to become a have. There's really only one way for most of us to get there, and investing is the way. So following Cardone's steps is just the beginning. To truly succeed, you have to repeat and reinforce these steps and have hyper-focus. And if you do, the rewards can be massive. This is Steve Pomerantz, and you're listening to The Steve Pomerantz Show. You know, I've been rereading The Intelligent Investor again. I don't know, maybe this is the 10th time I've read it. And I read it every so often so I can keep my investing head screwed on straight. And this particular version of the book has commentaries after every chapter by Jason Zweig. And as I was reading it, I came along what is entitled The Investment Owner's Contract. I thought this was terrific and I want to share it with you. So it starts, I, Steve Pomerantz, hereby state that I am an investor who is seeking to accumulate wealth for many years into the future. I know that there will be many times that I will be tempted to invest in stocks or bonds because they have gone or are going up in price and other times when I will be tempted to sell my investments because they have gone or are going down. I hereby declare my refusal to let a herd of strangers make my financial decisions for me. I further make a solemn commitment never to invest because the stock market has gone up and never to sell because it has gone down. Instead, I will invest, and there's a line blank here, so much per month, every month, through an automatic investment plan or dollar cost averaging program into the following mutual funds or diversified portfolios, and then there's lines for you to list them. I will also invest additional amounts whenever I can afford to spare the cash and can afford to lose it in the short run. I hereby declare that I will hold each of these investments continually through at least the following date, which must be a minimum of 10 years after the date of this contract. And there's a place for you to put the date, 10 years from now. The only exceptions allowed under the terms of this contract are a sudden pressing need for cash, like a healthcare emergency, or the loss of my job, or a planned expenditure like a housing down payment or tuition bill. I am, by signing below, stating my intention not only to abide by the terms of this contract, but to reread this document whenever I am tempted to sell any of my investments. This contract is valid only when signed by at least one witness and must be kept in a safe place that is easily accessible for future reference, etc., etc. Sign your name, have one person witness it, and put it someplace safe. I think this is a terrific document because it is so much part of our human nature when markets are rising to want to jump on board and get on that train to supposed riches. And when the market is falling is to bail out and run for the hills, afraid that you're going to lose every single dime you've ever invested. And remember, one of the key words in this contract 
was diversified investment. So nothing here on the whole is going to go out of business. Your money is going to fluctuate with the economy and with the markets. And over time, economies cycle down and they cycle up, as most of us have learned in these very difficult years of the last 10 years. So thinking in terms of having an investment owner's contract that you're signing and making a pledge, a pledge to yourself to follow, is probably one of the most healthy steps you can take to become a successful investor. Now, I have this for you. If you want it, just call us at one money one and I'll be happy to send you a copy of the Investment Owner's Contract or just get the book, The Intelligent Investor, with commentaries by Jason Zweig. And of course, the author is the well-known and really the father of modern investing, Benjamin Graham. This is the Steve Pomerantz Show, and I'm Steve Pomerantz. I'm happy to welcome Michael Batnick back. He's Director of Research at Ritholtz Wealth Management. He calls himself the Irrelevant Investor. I think I disagree, but he has a blog called TheIrrelevantInvestor.com. It's a favorite of mine, and I'm happy to have him back on the show. Welcome back, Mike. Hey, Steve. Thanks for having me again. So in one of your blogs, you said this. You had a quote from Bill Gates. Headlines, in a way, are what mislead you because bad news is a headline and gradual improvement is not. And I think we all know what he means. So gradual improvements go unnoticed. Take us through your idea a little bit. Yeah, so we had a a quarterly conference call, as we always do for our clients, and I was making a chart. The end of March marked the eighth year of, I don't know necessarily the eighth year of the bull market, but we could definitely say conclusively perhaps eight years of the end of the bear market. Mm-hmm. And what I was doing was recreating a chart that we've seen a million times, basically highlighting the wall of worry, all of the reasons why we could have sold and put our money into cash. And yeah. this was only a few of the reasons because I had a lot of difficulty choosing what to leave out because there were so many reasons. And just last night is another reason to sell. Yeah, yeah. And it's definitely not to ignore the human tragedy of what goes on around the world every single day. Right. But there are always reasons to sell. Okay. Well, now we pre-record this show. So last night was last week, but we're talking about the bombing of Syria. And I remember being in this business for as long as I have that when I first got into it, they were talking about, you know, Korean War, Vietnam War, you know, oil price shocks in 73, 74. But now, you know, obviously, I don't even think you, you don't even go back that far. What are some of the reasons to sell this wall of worry you talk about? So we had the BP oil spill. That was a huge one. Mm-hmm. We had the flash crash in May of 2010. Markets went down during those too. Oh, they sure did. Yeah, they absolutely did. Mm-hmm. The most powerful earthquake ever to hit Japan, the Nikkei fell 20% mm-hmm. in just three days, I believe. Mm-hmm. The S&P downgraded the U.S. debt. Markets definitely fell. Oh, that was a big uh, Had a 21% decline, but it was intraday. Mm-hmm. So on a closing basis, it was only 19.5%, and I'm using air quotes. In other words, <laughs> that didn't register an official bear market, which is pretty silly. Mm-hmm. And then we had the fiscal cliff and the government shutdown. On and, and on. Ebola. Yeah. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And too many things to even make the screen. In the meantime, your chart shows that from March of 09 to March of 17, the S&P 500 had a 257% gain had you been asleep during that whole period yeah. of time. I call it the Rip Van Winkle. Yeah way of investing, you know, falsely for 20 years, it's kind of all works out. But in the meantime, you know, life intervenes and it's kind of hell in the meantime. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So 
But there were a lot of things that didn't make the list, and you listed them out in your blog. Name some of those. Yeah, so what didn't make it was every time a celebrity bought stocks, <laughs> the big one was, I think, Mila Kunis, and then Kenny G was getting interested. Mm-hmm. Ashton Kutcher is all of a sudden a venture capitalist. Right. Occupy Wall Street, MF Global. I mean, the list goes on and Wait a minute, my on. favorite is Tony Robbins is a financial advisor. Right. So Tony Robbins is a self-help guy, and... I watched his documentary on Netflix. I desperately wanted to hate the guy. And I was really moved and really impressed with him. He's a genuinely superhuman being. Yeah. But he's not a financial advisor. Mm-hmm. And he is getting into finance. He coaches Paul Tudor Jones. And all of the advice that he's taken, he's harnessed from all of these brilliant people. And now he is directing clients to a financial advisory shop. So surely this must have been the top, right? Yeah. And it wasn't yet. Right. Okay. I gotcha. So if headlines are misleading us, and bad news is a headline and headlines have how much more power to, you know, news travels fast, but bad news travels faster. There was a ratio there from bad to good news. Yeah, I'd say it's infinity to one. <laughs> I can't even I can't even put a number on it because it's so jarring. And I'm going to quote myself. I said that bad news smashes your face against an amplifier while good news just plays quietly in the background. Mm-hmm. So the reason why that came about was because I had said to myself, okay, everybody's seen this chart of, of the wall of glory. Let's get a little bit creative and let's invert it. And let's, let's think about all the reasons that you, that you had to buy to be optimistic about the future. And it dawned on me really, really, really fast, hey, wait a minute, this is not nearly as easy as reasons to sell. And I really, really, really had to stretch to fill this in. Yeah, well, hold, well, hold on. So. You had to stretch because there weren't enough reasons or you just couldn't remember them because they just don't register? Probably both. And what Bill Gates said is so true that the good news is really gradual. So think about the massive improvements that we've seen over the last 10 years. Life has gotten a lot better. I mean, obviously life is, for maybe some people, has not gotten better. But, but by and large, progress has occurred. But it's, it's quietly. It's in the background. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily headlines. So let's talk about some of them. So you mentioned in about March of 2010, Steve Jobs unveils the iPad. Right. Warren Buffett says demand is coming back, and that was July of 2010. Go ahead. Right. So in 2010, who said to themselves, okay, cool, this tablet, this is really cool, but in a few years, Apple's going to be a half a trillion dollars, the biggest stock in the world. Mm -hmm. Nobody. Nobody. So some of the things that I put in here are just, and I wasn't even trying to be funny, but like House of Cards season one, I put that in because... How great is Netflix? What an amazing product. I see. I wonder why you put that in. There. Alibaba IPO. That was a big deal. But like yeah. none of these in and of itself, if anything, some of these are contrarian indicators. Yeah. A lot of people thought Alibaba was going to be the top. And then U.S. stocks gained 30% in 2013. A lot of people thought that was the top. Yeah. So now it's easy to say with the benefit of hindsight that it wasn't. But the point is that the good news is really, really hard to notice. And it's never as compelling as bad news. Talking with Michael Batnick, director of research at Ritholtz Management and uh, writer of the blog, TheIrrelevantInvestor.com. But you do list out, I think, a pretty good list here of some of the things that didn't necessarily make the headlines, but seem to be actually pretty valuable. For I'll, I'll start off, advances in medicine you know, over the last 10 or so years. Why don't you take us through some of these on the list? Yeah, so these are things that if I had to put them on the chart, they really wouldn't fit because where do you put cost going down for financial products. Where does that go on the chart? Uh-huh, Where point. is technology cost coming down? The first television I had, I paid 2500 bucks for a flat screen TV probably in 2006. What was that, a 19-inch? <laughs> yeah, right now you can get a great one for 400 bucks. Yeah. Google Maps is free. Yeah. High-speed Wi-Fi is everywhere. 
Solar energy is a legitimate option. Now, I don't know where these go on the chart. You could put them all over the chart because it's not as if they happened overnight. The advances in medicine over the last decade have been incredible. And again, progress happens very slowly. It compounds like interest. And it's not something that you could really point your finger to and say, here it was. This was the day to buy because X, Y, and Z. Yeah. So I like the compound interest thing because, you know, especially in, in the first 10, 20 years, you know, your money's growing, but it's really just not very exciting. A lot of it happens in kind of the, the next 20 to 30 years. You start really seeing the benefit of this compounding. And then really, you really see it when you look back right? and you notice that where you were, you know, let's say 25 years ago, as opposed to where you are now or where the S&P 500 was 25 years ago versus where it's now and so on. Then you start to see, aha, there's the trend. There's the real wealth creation in there somewhere. And the rest of it is just how do you even cope with all of these reasons to sell and these hidden reasons to buy? You just really don't know. But somehow there's this secret sauce. That's what Buffett calls right. it, the secret sauce. So let me give you a quick example of how compound interest works. And the famous or the popular one that you hear a lot is Warren Buffett, 95% of his net worth occurred you know, after his 65th birthday or something like that. But here's one that's pretty interesting and relevant to investors today because U.S. stocks are relatively expensive. European stocks are way cheaper, and they're cheaper for good reason. They've done nothing. But get this. So $1 invested in Europe, MSCI Europe, since 1970 to today, $1 has turned into $56. $1 invested in the S&P 500 has turned into $106, mm. almost twice as much. So at first blush, you would say, well, why the heck would I bother investing in Europe? The U.S. is obviously the better place to be. However, talk about compound interest, the entirety of that spread has occurred in the last seven years. In other words, from 1970 through the end of 2009, $1 invested in Europe and $1 invested in the S&P 500 with the exact same amount. Yeah. The entirety of $1 to $56 mm-hmm. and $1 to $106, that entire spread has occurred in just the last Yeah, so years. now if you're driving looking through the rear view mirror instead of ahead through the windshield, you're going to buy U.S. stocks only, but actually that's just because they've risen so much. It's like people buying real estate in 2005. When you looked at the historic return, you went, wow, you know, it's been a great investment, but it was really only the last, you know, the five years, so let's say from 2000. Michael, we're out of time. Let's continue this another time. My guest, Michael Batnick, Director of Research at Ritholtz Management. Go online and see his blog, theirrelevantinvestor.com. Thanks, Michael. Thank you, Steve. Are there any topics we're missing? Guests we haven't thought of that you'd like on the show? Questions you want answered? Contact us anytime at stevepomeranz.com. That's Steve, P-O-M-E-R-A-N-Z.com. Simply go to stevepomeranz.com and click contact to write us anytime, anywhere. Articles on the site you liked or didn't? Want to share your two cents? Comment on any of our guest interviews and tell us. You know, this show's purpose is to empower and protect you on all things financial. We'd love to hear your feedback so we can make sure we're getting you the information you need to live your one best financial life. Contact us at any time at stevepomeranz.com. That's Steve, P-O-M-E-R-A-N-Z.com.
This is the Steve Pomerantz Show, and I'm Steve Pomerantz. Now that the baseball season has officially started, it's a good time to ponder some lessons to be learned from the teams that rise to the top. Performance consultant John Brubaker's latest book, Stadium Status, peers into the world of the big time and what it takes for any of us in business or otherwise to fill a stadium like a country star. Welcome, John. Hey, Steve. Thanks for having me today. You use baseball as a good metaphor for business because both are team sports. Is it what goes on before these teams hit the field that makes the big difference? It's a lot of what goes on before the teams hit the field that make all the difference. And it's also, I think it parallels business in that it's a really long season. And there's a lot of ups and downs and a lot of adversity. Some people might say baseball is a game of failure, and that's the parallel to business. I would say really it's a game of opportunity, and that's the parallel to business or entrepreneurship. But so much of it is you know, winning off the field before you ever win on the field, and it's the same with organizational culture. So if I'm leading an organization or I'm leading a team, what can we learn from some of the more successful teams? You, know, you mentioned the Red Sox you know, back in 2013 winning the World Series. What could we learn from something like that? Sure. I don't think winning happens by accident ever at any level. You know, uh, whether it's the Red Sox World Series run compared to, say, uh, the St. Louis Cardinals and their results on the field. Or, you know, I look back at a 12-year coaching career. I was a college lacrosse coach for 12 years, Steve. Mm -hmm. And there are many years when I had an awful lot of talent, more so than other teams on our schedule. But that didn't always equate into wins, you know, in the record books. And I look back at some of my teams where we had inferior talent, but we had great chemistry. Mm -hmm. And those were our more successful seasons. I think chemistry counts for a lot more, whether it's on the field or in the sport of business, than talent. But so often we get caught in the trap of simply trying to stockpile talent. Yeah, yeah. You look at what Boston did a couple of years ago before the start of the season, they cut their payroll by $25 million and they got rid of a handful of star players and their manager. And a, a couple months later, they've gone from worst to first. So sometimes it's addition by subtraction when it comes to your roster, so to speak. Well, if you're working with a team and you've got some malcontents, even among the star players and maybe a manager that's got some issues as well. Sometimes a turnover can be a good thing. Sometimes it can be disruptive, but a lot of times it can actually be quite beneficial. Absolutely. You know, you talk about cancer in the human body, there's also cancer in locker rooms in the form of, you know, malcontents, negative players. That spreads. And the negative tends to spread twice as fast as the positive mm -hmm. in terms of messaging in the locker room. So we have to be very mindful in our workplace, the locker room for a professional team is their workplace. We have to be just as mindful about the chemistry on our teams and making sure that the positive outweighs the negative. Yeah. I'm trying to get some kind of specific ideas for our listeners. You know, you tell the story about the St. Louis Cardinals that they let their free agent superstar, Albert Pujols, who you say are arguably the greatest hitter of his generation, they let him go because he had a surly attitude. And, you know, shortly after the trade, it came out that he wasn't a great teammate and so on. And two seasons later, they made it to the World Series without him. And so where's this chemistry? That's what it all sounds like. You're combining 
personalities in a beaker, like a chemistry class, and what comes out can be quite variable. How do you control that? I think the way you control it, and you're right, is, you know, team building, team success, you know, if it were a course in school is absolutely more like a chemistry class than a math class. You know, two plus two isn't four on the field or, you know, in our businesses. It's sometimes it's three and sometimes two plus two is five because the sum of the parts, you know, the whole is never equal to the sum of the parts. It's either greater or lesser. And, and where we get that chemistry is by looking at skill sets and people's roles that can complement one another. You know, it's very rare unless you're the top brand in your industry that you're going to be able to, quote, recruit the finished product, kind of like a professional team. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to develop people and their skill set, but play to their strengths in a specific role. You know, like in teams, I, I always like to say everyone's a role player. It's often looked at as a negative connotation. Oh, so-and-so, well, he's just a role player. Actually, everyone's a role player. Our roles are different and ought to be geared towards our strengths. And that's where you get that two plus two is five. It sounds a little bit like the money ball idea where, you know, you've, you've got these different attributes and I guess, you know, it's, it's really how you put them together to form some kind of a cohesive unit. But more importantly, we just started with the baseball season. Which teams are you betting on this year? Speaking of Moneyball, I'm betting on my Pittsburgh Pirates. I just uh, got back from, this is my second year working with the team. I just got back from spring training in Bradenton. I spent a couple of days yeah. down there speaking to their coaches. And they're a small market team. And I think, you know, if you're an entrepreneur or a business leader, you're in this story too. Most of us are small market teams, so to speak, Steve. Yeah. And we've got to find a way to do it different. So they've really embraced not just the Moneyball concept in terms of offense, but defensive shifts and changing the way they play defensively to capitalize on their individual strengths to make the team stronger. But they're doing things in such a unique, unorthodox way that they're catching a lot of people by surprise. And you know, I think that's going to be a difference maker in everyone's profession. We all tend to try and keep up with the front runner as opposed to blazing our own trail and doing it different. What are you doing differently? My guess yeah. is John Brubaker's book is Stadium Status. And one of the things he talks about that I want to get to next is creating customers for life, how Garth Brooks uses the worst seats in the house. Tell us about that. Sure. You know, first of all, if you haven't seen Garth Brooks in concert, you owe it to yourself just to get to a show, whether you're a country music fan or not, success leaves clues. And you're going to learn a lot about audience engagement, and connection with your customers from watching Garth in his office, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And it all starts before he ever sets foot on stage, Steve. You know, I, I've had the opportunity. I'm a huge country music fan. I've had the opportunity to see him live a number of times, once in a very small venue, Mellon Arena in Pittsburgh, and another time with a couple other million maniacs in Central Park <laughs> when he performed that live show a number of years ago, and, and it was 1997. You get the sense that no matter where you are, you could be in the worst seat in the house, the back of Central Park, that at some point during a song, a set, the show, he's looking at you and he is singing directly to you. And anyone who's seen Garth has experienced this, I would venture to say. Mm. And what it stems from is the morning of his show, what he does while the crew is setting up the stage and lighting and doing their sound checks and things. 
he goes up and he sits in the nosebleeds in that obstructed view seat in the arena or the stadium. Hmm. And he just sits up there in his sweats and his ball cap, sipping a cup of coffee, looking at the stage. What he's doing is he's getting his worst customer's vantage point how they're going to see him that night on stage. Mm -hmm. So he knows where they're looking, what they're looking at, how far away they are. And he makes a very deliberate attempt to connect with them. And he took a little bit of criticism, more than a little bit of criticism earlier in his career when he would fly out on wires, you know, off of the stage, out into the crowd. And people thought he was an egomaniac and he was doing that for show. Like he thought he was a rock star, like Kiss or Van Halen. Yeah. It wasn't for show, it was for his fans. Mm -hmm. Because you might not be able to afford front row seats, but for that song or you know, that moment when he flies out there, he is singing to you and you have a front row experience right there. I think that's a there's a strong lesson for any business, small business, large business. You know, how does a small business get to their customer that is maybe not the most maybe they're all important, but you can't get out to them, you don't have the manpower or so on. What do you do to service them to keep customers for life? What do you think? Yeah, I think little becomes big when you treat little right. And what I mean by that is in each of his shows, he has since made his comeback tour. I'm happy to see he's doing the same thing now that he did you know, when he was originally out touring. Is He has it written into each of his contracts, and he pays out of pocket for this. It's my understanding. Mm-hmm. He gets a set of front row seats that he pays for and he sends an usher up to the back row into the obstructed view seats mm-hmm. and gets that family of four and says, Hey, um, nice. I think you're in the wrong seat. <laughs> and like, if you're sitting back there, you turn around and you're yeah. looking at a like, cinder what? block wall. Like, <laughs> does it get worse than this? And oh, it's almost, Steve, it's almost theater because he then has the usher say, Mr. Brooks sent me up here. You're in the front row with him tonight. So imagine like if we all took that approach, instead of focusing just on our quote key accounts or biggest accounts, we developed and cemented that same kind of loyalty from our smallest customers who over time, then that, you know, that small customer grows yeah. and you give them an experience like no one else could possibly or would possibly give them. There's a lot there. There's a lot in this book. If you're a small business owner, medium or large business owner, it's worth it to take a look at this book. I think you'll gain a lot from it. The book's name is Stadium Status. The author with me today is John Brubaker. To hear more about this book and to hear this interview and and to read the transcripts and all, don't forget to come to stevepomerantz.com. We look forward to you visiting our site. John, thank you so much for joining me today. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Steve. Terry Story and Real Estate Roundup is next. This is the Steve Pomerantz Show, and I'm Steve Pomerantz. It's time for Real Estate Roundup. This is the time every single week we get together with noted real estate agent Terry Story. Terry is a 28-year veteran with Coldwell Banker located in Boca Raton, Florida. Welcome back to the show, Terry. Thanks for having me, Steve. So home prices have been rising. We know that. I don't think wages necessarily are keeping up with it. How's housing affordability these days? Well, you know, they have this index that's out there, and basically the index is not favorable. The affordability index is dropping. So 
basically what they're saying is the prices of housing are growing faster than people's wages, in essence, is what's occurring. So what are some of the numbers here? How much of the market, what percentage of the market is starting to become unaffordable? You're looking at about 25% of the U.S. markets are becoming less affordable than usual. Mm-hmm. And then there's, you know, certain cities are better than others. The silver lining in all of this, if you really think about it, is that in order to have this happen, you've got stronger wages growing is the silver lining in this report, which is outpacing home price growth in more than half of the markets for the first time since the first quarter of 2012. All right. So wages are starting to pick up a little bit and that's going to help. And we did see a pickup in the cost of mortgages, but I think that rate has come down a little bit. So that might be helping as well. What are some of the counties or some of the areas in the country that are least affordable? Well, the biggest areas are Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Hawaii. No surprise there. Right. Absolutely no surprise. Mm -hmm. California, you've got New York, California, Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, if you live in these places and you can't afford it, the good news is there's places that are affordable. So you can leave your beautiful home in Maui and move to Clayton County, Georgia, (laughs) for example. Well, it's in the Atlanta metro area. We've got nothing against that. No, nothing. It's not quite Maui, but... (laughs) Wayne County, Michigan, Trumbull County, Ohio. So lots of places in Georgia, Michigan, Ohio, Uh Milwaukee, Wisconsin. New York State. New York State. So you can move out of Manhattan and you know just go out to all the burbs. (laughs) (laughs) So there are there are options. Okay. So one out of every four counties in the country prices are becoming less affordable. And that's a sign of a pretty high price market, right? It is. It means, you know, especially from where we've been, and not all areas are back to where we were in 2006. Yeah. But certainly we are looking at a very healthy real estate market. You know, everything's supply and demand, Steve. You know, interest rates, you know, people get all worried about the prices of houses going way up. Well, when that happens, then people can't afford them and and then the interest rates drop. So when the interest rates drop, you know, they work uh like hand in hand. It's a, it's a self Right. The economies, when they're working at their best, are self-correcting. Right. So if if things become unaffordable, then housing softens and then prices come down and the market kind of reflects that. It doesn't happen immediately, but, you know, it does happen over time. That's kind of the beauty of of, a free enterprise is that markets self-correct. But now the issue is with prices so high, people on average still are not selling. Sellers are not at the marketplace. Right. And the sellers aren't at the marketplace because the sellers are looking at their home. They look at what's available if they want to move and they're like, oh, wow, there's no inventory. Do I really want to sell my house? Mm -hmm. So we've we've got ourselves caught in this vicious cycle where we really anticipated that we would have more inventory, especially for the spring season, but it hasn't happened yet. And that's primarily because the sellers are out there looking to see what they can get for their money and they're discouraged. They don't see a lot of opportunity because of the low levels of inventory. So we need sellers to sell. You know, we need inventory. So sellers have to sell and make that move. And then the fact is, though, where are they going? You know, if they're selling at a nice... Georgia. (laughs) Well, this is is really it. I mean, if you're going to be selling and you want to stay in your marketplace, you're going to be buying up as well. Right. So, you know, there's got to be another reason for you to move, whether you're maybe buying down to reduce the noose, you know, as they used to say, (laughs) or... You're buying up because your family is expanding. There's got to be a reason, but nevertheless, there's just not enough reasons, I guess, to bring the sellers out. And I guess they are not all going to move to Bibb County, Georgia. 
You know, that's right. (laughs) Well, I guess we we figured that one out. I want to talk about your real estate survival guide because we were discussing earlier off the air. You know that watch out for deed restrictions because that can really mess you up. You've got some experiences with that as well. Tell us about that. Oh, absolutely. So many people buy single family homes. This is the best example. Buy a single family home. You don't think about what kind of rules and regulations there may be in the neighborhood. If you're buying a home, absolutely put into a contract, you know, some kind of language that says seller has to provide the deed restrictions or rules and regulations during the inspection period. So you have an opportunity to review them. Here are the nasty surprises that happen all the time, Steve. Buyer owns a pickup truck. Never told his realtor he had a pickup truck. No one ever seemed to ask him about a pickup truck. He didn't know the rules. Goes to close on his property. Guess what? Pickup truck is not allowed. And now we have a big problem. That's a real typical one that we see quite often, you know, vehicle restrictions. If you're someone who's buying a home that plans to change the home, you really need to know what kind of height restrictions there may be in the neighborhood. Are you allowed? Do you have to get approval from the association? We have a neighborhood here in in my marketplace where all the roofs have to be white. You know, they all have to be uniform. So, you know, somebody may not think about it. They may say, hey, you know, I want one of these new S-tile clay color roofs. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? That's not going to it's not going to fly. Mm-hmm. And it can be costly by not knowing what those deed restrictions are prior to moving in. Yeah, I mean, what if you own a business where you have a van that has uh, commercial lettering on the side or oh, you know, another big mistake. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll give you a personal example. We had that my my husband and we had to buy white magnets to put them over the label, you know, the signage on one of his vehicles. Oh, I see. In other words, with nothing on it, just the magnet. So right. You to hide up the, the writing mm. company logos that were oh, on I his see. vehicle. So wow. these are things that are important to know about prior to getting into a neighborhood. Yeah, so watch out for deed restrictions. And you have a, there's a three day rescission period, right? So. Well, no, there isn't. No, there isn't. That's only in condos. And that's why it's so important. Uh, I know in our contracts in Florida, yeah. in the market that we're in, there's nothing that says the seller has to provide the deed restrictions. So it's really, as a consumer, as a buyer, you need to you know, ask your realtor to put in some kind of language Got it. so that you get a hold of those documents so you can review them for yourself. Got it. My guest, as always, is Terry Story, a 28-year veteran with Coldwell Banker located in Boca Raton, Florida, and she could be found at terrystory.com. Thanks, Terry. Thanks for having me, Steve. Stay tuned for the rest of my fascinating interview with Patricia Gucci. Definitely the name Gucci and the family traces itself back to the 1500s. StevePomerance.com now features each week's show in shareable individual segments. Busy at work and want to come back to the show later? No problem. Every segment has a full summary of what was discussed, along with a transcription of the interview. You can read or listen to one of my commentaries. Hey, is there something I mentioned on air you want to find on our site? Well, you can search for it. So check it out and let us know what you think. We'd love to hear your thoughts on what you liked or what you didn't. You can request topics you want us to talk about and ask us questions. We'll get back to you, promise. And you can like us on Facebook, where you'll find out about upcoming events and subscribe to our podcast. It's all there at stevepomerance.com 
That's Steve, P-O-M-E-R-A-N-Z dot com. This is Steve Pomerantz, and you're listening to The Steve Pomerantz Show. I'm here with Patricia Gucci. The book is In the Name of Gucci. It's a memoir, and we're speaking about the house of Gucci, the business, and of course, Patricia's life. Welcome back to our show here, Patricia. Hello. Nice to be here. Patricia, let's move forward now to the time when Aldo met your mother, Bruna. Bruna was hired by Aldo. And briefly take us through how they first really met and how their relationship developed. Well, my mother went to work at Gucci when she was 18 in Rome and started as a shop girl and introduced to the manager by her fiancé, who knew him very well. And so it was a wonderful entrance into this world that she had never before seen of luxury and, and glamour and, and something beyond her expectations. And she loved her job and was very happy. My father spotted her, of course. It was a small shop in those days. It wasn't a huge place like now. And she was a very beautiful woman and a young girl, actually, at those days. And, you know, it was for the first year, uh, it was all very proper. And he would just always give her special little acknowledgement that he would give only to her. But it was nothing untoward. And then later on, he asked her to be his secretary. And there he showed his true intentions a little more and uh, eventually got to a point where he decided to give her letters because my mother was very modest and she absolutely made sure that she was, you know, never uh, to uh, never given any indication of interest. But he was a formidable person, much older and powerful. And it was her boss. And eventually his beautiful love letters won her over. Those love letters are printed a number of them are printed in the book, and he was really quite a formidable writer, and he was truly enamored and in love with her, but he was married at the time. Yes, that was the unpleasant aspect of everything, because in those days also having an extramarital affair was considered a criminal act, not just a moral negative act. And therefore, my mother, you know, was, was torn in being in this situation, and my father, though, you know, always reassured her that she was everything to him, and she had to have faith in the process, but that was easier said than done for my mother. She absolutely could not accept being in the circumstances. And so there was a, it was a battle of, of, of that for my mother all her life. She suffered a lot of anxiety due to it. It set a tone in her life that made her, you know, maybe uh, not the person she would have become if she hadn't yeah. <laughs> been in that position. Yeah. Well, Aldo also had three sons, correct? Yes, exactly. Around my mother's age. Yeah, so that created quite a problem. And eventually, this affair came out to the family and created, you know, a lot of... After my birth, it yeah. became knowledge. Right. When my mother had to have me in London and came back to Rome and the word leaked out <laughs> that my father had me mm-hmm. and that he had given me his name. Yeah. I mean... The climate back then was such that if there was adultery, if there was a birth out of marriage, I mean, even Ingmar Bergman, who had an affair when she was married, I mean, the U.S. Senate actually banned her from public appearances. That's how conservative the country was back then. And and Italy, especially, Mm -hmm. as you said, I mean, it was against the law. You could be imprisoned 
for being and adulterated. And the Catholic Church. The Catholic huge, Church, uh, right. Part of the yeah. process, yes. Yeah. Very, very shunned. But it was a huge hypocrisy when you think about it, because everybody was fooling around and doing oh, what they absolutely. were doing. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, Italian, Italian men are known to be the biggest Casanovas. <laughs> exactly. And everyone had a mistress or so, but not that my father, my mother was the first person that in his life out of his marriage, but definitely she was the one that he fell in love with on a level that he hadn't ever before. So you grew up in this environment and you spent most of your life in England, is that right? I was born in London and I was raised there until I was nine years old. Okay. Tell us about your life after nine. At nine, actually, I was a very happy little child going to English boarding school and I didn't really know I had any other life until my mother one day decided to announce that I had three half-brothers and then my mm-hmm. father had a wife and that we were moving to Rome pretty much all in one conversation. So that was quite a revelation. Um, I wasn't unhappy about having three half-brothers. I was not happy about leaving England. How were you treated in uh, London? In England? I was in the country in those days. I mean, I loved it. I was English. I, I, didn't, you had, I didn't speak Italian, so I was very much English. For me, it was my life. My friends were there, and, and everything I loved and cherished was in England. When you <laughs> moved to Rome, it yeah. was a shock. Yeah, so I'm sure it was. So were you accepted or rejected by the family? Oh, absolutely accepted. I mean, you know, they embraced me, and my father was after about a year that I moved to Rome, he organized an encounter with my brothers. And, you know, when we were all together in the room, it was all very cordial. And, 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 you know, one of them was even effusively affectionate. You know, he hugged me and called me his little sister. So mm-hmm. at the beginning, I had no inclination at all that there would be any, you know, objection on their part, even though my mother was very cynical about it all. <laughs> My guest is Patricia Gucci. The name of the book is In the Name of Gucci, a memoir. And don't forget to hear this conversation again. Join us at onthemoneyradio.org. Let's move forward here a little bit and talk about the business. Now, by the time you were 16 or 18, tell us the state of the Gucci business as you knew it. Well, when I was 16... I was in boarding school in Switzerland, but I would occasionally fly to America on holidays. And my father started then introducing me to, you know, to social situations, like uh, when he wasn't able to attend a function or a party or an event, he, he would have me represent him. I looked older than my age, and I had all the poise that him and the wherewithal, I think, that he felt I could do it. And therefore, that was my first realization of how incredibly important the name was in America. It was quite significant. And to have that name was also quite a, you know, it was an important thing to have, but it was also quite overwhelming, you know, because people would look at you in a completely different way. And Mm -hmm. that's not how I was raised in Europe. But it was great. It was, it was, Gucci was in its heyday. There was nothing more exciting than to be around those exciting times. But there's so much success and recognition. So now you have been introduced to Gucci. The family has moved from England to Rome. You've been well accepted. As you got older, you started to represent the company, as you mentioned. So how is the business doing at that time? What year are we talking about? 
Well, when I left school, I, I moved to New York to study acting, and one thing led to another. My father brought me even more into the company, you know, not just as uh, occasional uh, ambassador, but also, you know, to work full time. And in those days, this was in the early 80s, and it was still a brand of huge significance and influence. And, you know, uh, people loved Gucci. Everybody wore Gucci. It was mm -hmm. something, it was a uniform practically for every single person to have either a Gucci loafer or a Gucci bag. And it, it was, you know, an incredible company in those days. And it was a fun thing to be working. And there was nothing better, especially as it was a family company. 1953, Guccio Gucci dies, and your father wanted to change the business. He wanted to go public and distribute shares, but there was a lot of fighting about the future direction of the company. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, it, I wouldn't say there was a, it was a huge problem. I think everybody knew what they wanted to do and where they would be. I mean, my uncle Rodolfo was a movie star. But it didn't work out in the long term, so he came back into the company. And his job was to pretty much manage the shop in Milano and, and you know, occasionally go to the factory in Florence. And my other uncle, Vasco, he was in charge of the, of the Florentine factory. And my father was the man who just was the engine and mm -hmm. just went everywhere and, and expanded and expanded and expanded and did what he had to do, marketed the company in every way that only he knew how because he was the only one with the vision. However, Paolo and some others conspired to take the business from your father. Can you talk to us about that a little bit? That, yes. Well, that came late. That was my father's son. Mm -hmm. You know, eventually uh, Vasco died, my father's brother, and it was just my father and Rodolfo. So the sons, you know, my father gave them shares so that they would feel part of the company. And because Rodolfo was giving a lot of pressure to my father about their presence in the company. and to make them feel just as important and not just employees. But Paolo was always a bit of a rebel, and he wanted to do things his way. He was headstrong. He tended to go against the grain and, and, and wanted to do things that were not part of the company's vision. And uh, my father got very upset with him, and they were always fighting. And Paolo, you know, did a lot of damage in the family environment. Yeah, so it was a lot of intrigue in the way that Paolo tried to, and actually eventually did, wrench control of the company away from your father? Well, he had the opportunity to go to my cousin, who at that time, his father had died, and he inherited his 50%. So by going to my cousin, he made a deal. Uh, said, look, I can give you my shares, but you can buy my shares, and then, you know, my father becomes a minority. And that was how he took control of the company, well, not Paolo took the control of the company, but that it was taken away from my father. Mm -hmm. Was it during this time that your father was contacted by the U.S. Internal Revenue Service? Well, Paolo, again, went to the U.S. Internal Revenue Service mm -hmm. and gave them information that my father had been evading taxes. And at that time, my father had a green card, was a resident. So they started a full-force investigation, and my father ended up going to prison. At 82. Yeah, at 82. This must have been just an unbelievable, devastating blow for him. It was the worst thing that could possibly happen to him, yes. It was one of the worst things. That and the betrayal, I don't know which one which could have been worse. What eventually happened to the company in terms of, I guess, the business reputation 
and the ownership of the business? Well, the company was eventually uh, bought by Invis Corp. You know, they went in towards the members, the sons first, and made them offers to buy um, mm-hmm. with Maurizio in the background, telling him that he would be running the business after they take over the ownership. And so my father was the last person they went to, and he resisted because the last thing he was this was his his baby. He had made this company, yeah. he did everything, and it was wrenched from him in a way that he never expected. But eventually, he had to, and that was then the end of the Gucci family, other than my cousin being involved. And then my cousin eventually he ran the company pretty much to the ground, yeah. and doing all sorts of crazy things, and. Inviscorp decided to save their investment by buying him out, and there was no more members of the family after that. So was there any inheritance? Was there anything left of Gucci to the Gucci family and to your father, Aldo? Well, I mean, everyone had the benefits of the shares that were sold. And yeah, no one was involved with the company anymore, and, and no one had any ownership of the company. Yeah. Now, you were on the board at that time, right? in those years? I was on the board a few years before. Uh-huh. Yes, in my early 20s, uh-huh. which was a few years before my father passed when I was 27, 1990. What role did you play in the company besides being on the board? I was a, the fas- a fashion coordinator. I used to do all the window displays throughout America. I helped with all the fashion shows and eventually did them all myself. I basically started learning in the beginning my father, everything he, I attended all the meetings with him just to learn how everything went. And eventually I found a place for myself, which was more on displays and to bring a, a, younger, a younger look to the, the mm-hmm. fashions of the company at that time. You eventually, after all this was done, you eventually got a job at Gucci in the United Kingdom. Is that right? Yes. Later on, it was before they sold everything. We moved back to England and I still had a position in in the UK and also in Japan and Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And then when my father had to eventually sell, that finished my employment too. <laughs> and I was put under a gag order with him at the same time that he sold his shares. So I was no longer able to work in the company, outside the company, or mm-hmm. have any non-compete as well as not speak about anything for 10 years. For 10 years. So it was really quite a long journey from the humble beginnings of Guccio Gucci to the dynamic business that was built by your father, Aldo. The fact that personally, the family dynamics, you being born out of wedlock and so on, especially back in those years in the 50s, was quite a sensation. And as the business developed and your father grew this business into the icon that it is today, he then basically ended up losing the business to his nephew and uh, one of his sons, and then eventually was sold to a Bahrain-based company, InvestCorp. And to this day, your father passed away when? My father passed away in 1990. Mm-hmm. And what was the effect on the family, on all the brothers and your mother after his death? Well, my father did not speak to his sons for over a year after they sold their shares. And for him, that was the ultimate act of betrayal uh, of every kind because they had completely destroyed his dream of having the business in the family. And so for him, when, when he died, you know, 
they saw him. I, I had to call them and to his bedside, to, you know, because at that point we knew he was not going to live too long. And he pretty much looked at them as, as to say, you know, well, look what you've done. And it was a very pretty heavy duty time for them to have to recognize. I'm sure they felt very guilty as to what they had done. And as far as my mother, you know, for the, for the next decade, I would say, it was very hard for us to sort of figure out where our lives were going to go. And my mother especially, yeah, he was everything for her. And she didn't know which way to turn, you know. And it took her a long time to get back on her feet and be, you know, happy with herself and, and there you go. But now she's a grandmother and mm-hmm. I'm her mother of three daughters and mm-hmm. we're fine. <laughs> and what are you doing now? Well, now I'm finishing promoting this book <laughs> and figuring out future projects still to be decided. But there's a lot of things that I have in mind. So it's all been a wonderful process. Well, thank you so much for sharing the Gucci story. The book is In the Name of Gucci, a memoir. Author is Patricia Gucci. Patricia, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. You know, I just want to remind you that any interviewee's appearance on The Steve Pomeran Show does not represent any endorsement or confer any opinion whatsoever, either positive or negative, by The Steve Pomeran Show or any media by which The Steve Pomeran Show is distributed. Thank you so much for joining us. Investing involves risk, and listeners should carefully consider their own investment objectives and never rely on any single chart, graph, or marketing piece to make decisions. The radio show is intended for informational purposes only, is not a recommendation to buy or sell any securities, and should not be considered tax legal investment advice. Please contact your tax legal financial professional with questions about your specific needs and circumstances. The information in the show is obtained from sources believed to be reliable. However, their accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. All data are driven from publicly available information and has not been independently verified by United Capital. Neither United Capital nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. This recording should not be relied upon to evaluate any potential transaction. United Capital is not giving tax, legal, investment advice by means of this recording, and this recording does not establish a client relationship with United Capital.